This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week we have a special extra podcast. It's my interview with Victor Niederhofer. He is the author of Education of a Speculator and really is quite an accomplished and fascinating person. Uh, he has made and lost several fortunes, uh, primarily by using lots of leverage and by being on the other side of the trade from a, a number of black swans. And and if you think about taking the other side of the trade from Nassim Taleb, well, when you're right, you're going to make money. But when you lose, you're wrong, you're going to lose a ton of money. And and that seemed to be what happened to Niederhofer in the 07, 08, 09 collapse. Um, he's had a number of uh, astonishing setbacks that he's more or less recovered from. He still carries scars from from some of the losses. Uh, but by and large, he is an accomplished and fascinating person. And I think people who are active traders uh, can stand to learn a lot from his experiences. So with no further ado, my conversation with Victor Niederhofer. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Victor Niederhofer. He is known as one of the legendary traders on Wall Street. He studied statistics and economics at Harvard, got his PhD at the University of Chicago, briefly taught finance at Berkeley University before he began trading in 1979 when he turned $50,000 into $20 million in 18 months. He was a top trader for George Soros before starting on his own in the 1990s, uh, launching his own fund then. He is the author of the classic investment text, Education of a Speculator. Victor Niederhofer, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you very much, Barry. It's so, nice to be here. I am a, a, a fan of some of your writings and some of your work. I know of you through your reputation and your legend. You have a really interesting background. Your father was a police officer in New York City. Your mother was an English teacher. From that beginning, how did you find your way into finance? Well, what a policeman he was. Um, he was in the class of... 1937, which was the first time that civil service exams were given for policemen. Before that, it was based upon who you knew and your ethnicity. So in that, in that class, they had, uh, which was in the middle of the Depression, they had about 50,000 applicants for 250 jobs. And the 250 jobs were decided based on a combination of physical IQ and intelligence IQ. Mm -hmm. So all the people in that class, including my father, were geniuses. Uh, my father um, was a four-letter man at Brooklyn College. And he had a Ph.D. and a law degree, and he was a founder of John Jay 
college and university, which at that time had 15 students and now has 18,000. And he was omniscient. So I always had a, um, a very uh, intellectual background and a physical background from and, my dad. And in fact, let's flesh that out for listeners. You were the national amateur ta- uh, champion in squash. You're a highly regarded tennis player. You competed at the professional level in, in racket squash, um, surprising a number of pros by beating them. And on the intelligence side, no less than Nassim Taleb called you the most brilliant person he's ever met. So apparently, the apple does not fall far from the tree. Well, um, I wish I was half the man uh, my father uh, was. Um, and uh, that, uh, but you might as well, uh, since the one thing that I really um, have been very successful at uh, was my rackets career. Uh, my uh, There's a a very famous uh, rackets player named Steve Keeley, who was the um, number number one racquetball and paddleball player in the um, in the world in the mid seventies, and he once described me as the best all all around racket player in history. And not too bad. I did win the. U.S. Um, amateur championships five times and the North American Pro, uh, which at that time was the World Championships, once. So, uh, and I was in the top ten in racquetball. So, I did a lot of uh, racket playing, and but like everything else, uh, success is fleeting, and. Last week, um, I had a challenge match with your colleague, Joe Wiesenthal. Oh, sure. And uh, before it, I played a a woman who was the, um, who played with a paddle racket against my tennis racket. Uh And she, uh, so I had a big advantage. How'd you do? She beat me 21 to 12. <laughs> so um, a, lot of, a lot has changed. I, I had played on those same courts 50, uh, about 58 years ago mm-hmm. and won the, uh, what was then called the, um, the National um, paddleball championships um, which they played with a tennis racket in those days and so in 55 years I went from the top to um, and also ran in the markets like that also let's begin with a quote of yours that I really like speculation like most activities is an art science attempts to answer the pivotal question of speculation invariably raise twice as many questions as they solve. That that quote raises at least two questions I find fascinating. What do you mean that speculation is an art and a science? Well, I, I believe that 
in order to be successful at speculation, you have to be very systematic. You have to do a lot of counting, and you have to have a um, scientific mien. But also, I, I don't believe that algorithms and robot trading is the secret to success. I believe you have to have a, a higher framework. My higher framework involves a combination of ecology and statistics, biology, physics, and it's very important for anyone who wants to be successful to have a good foundation that overrides the uh, ephemeral and the transitory aspects of the market. Why do you say that each inquiry raised twice as many questions as they answered? That That's a fascinating observation. Well, the beautiful aspect of speculation is that it's all-encompassing. It covers um, every economic, political, psychological, and biological facet of life. And in order to be good at it, you need to have a grounding and an appreciation of all these subjects besides being systematic and knowing how to count. <laughs> it's a little more than knowing how to count, though, isn't it? You need to. Uh, there are some people who do a lot of counting, and I, I'm happy to say that uh, I invented that. What's perhaps the major, the major utilized um, tool in counting? I invented that 30 years ago. Basically, the idea that there are multivariate time series relations between markets that vary by day and time of the the day and that has become the mainstay of of many uh, of the many thousands of my um, competitors and followers who have um, used my program of variance of it which I invented 30 years ago you also invented 30 years ago one of, if not the first, software written as a trading program. You were decades ahead of the rest of Wall Street. Tell us how that computerized trading program well, came about. That's an interesting story, and uh, it's had a lot of uh, unintended consequences. <laughs> It was inevitable. It was going to happen eventually. Oh, of course, yes, but. Um, but you started I'll, before I'll, people were I'll really tell, thinking I'll about it. I'll tell you how it started. It started in a unique fashion that probably has never happened before. When I got into business, I started a, a business in being a merger broker. We were called Finders. In those days, an and investment banker selling. I was companies. not an investment banker. The people used to try to criticize me and say that I I sold businesses the way Colgate sold 
toothpaste, right. which I uh, took as a great compliment. In one of those aspects, I was visiting Tandy Corporation, and they were an owner of Radio Shack, if memory serves. Is that correct? Right? Mm -hmm. At that time, in their catalog, they had first developed and offered for sale a um, Radio Shack TRS-80. Mm -hmm. The first user-programmable computer, more or less? Correct. I was one of the first to buy that computer, and I bought one for my younger brother, Roy Niederhofer. And he and I, uh, he was about 10 at the time. He subsequently um, developed a game business where he had about 75 of his colleagues in elementary and high school working for him. <laughs> and I then um, used that Radio Shack computer, which had 30, about 15,000 bits of memory available to program a um, systematic uh, multivariate um, time series program with a young assistant of mine um, named um, Susan, who was so good at programming and so efficient and also very good at racquetball that uh, ultimately... Um, we started living together, and uh, it's about we are we've been married for thirty or forty years, and and been with each other for about fifty years, forty five years. So you graduate from the University of Chicago, which is known as the efficient market hypothesis capital of the universe, right? And yet you uh, start pushing back against EMH immediately, saying. No, I think there are patterns visible in market trading, and short term, there are ways to beat the market and and earn, um, uh, identify. Uh, short term, there are ways to identify opportunities that are consistent, repeatable. How much pushback did you get from the EMH crowd at Chicago? Well, we were all a bunch of ignoramuses in. <laughs> In those days, and they had uh, some crutches and old saws that they liked to use um, based upon um, distributions with infinite variances. They called them Pareto sure. uh, distributions. And their, their acts, their bias at that time was that everything was random and that all um, known information was immediately encapped in the market and there was no way to make a profit. And I was, uh, I've, I've always loved to um, go into the stacks of libraries and fortunately the Harvard Business Library had one of the best libraries in the world and I would add I've been fortunate um, to be associated in my three uh, stints at education at Harvard, Chicago, and Berkeley. Each one had a great library, which I used to the foremost. But I, I used to look at the uh, 
uh, Harvard had something in those days which uh, no one else had, which was the Francis Emery Fitch sheets, which had the record of every transaction, uh, which in those days were about uh, 20,000 uh, transactions a day on the New York Stock Exchange and the American Stock Exchange. And I looked at those transactions and found that there was a tendency to reversal at the microscopic level and to continuation at the uh, macroscopic level. Now I know. In other words, ongoing trends tend to continue, but there are short-term reversals uh, uh, against the dominant trend. Uh, that's what I noticed. Of course, the markets are ever-changing, and I wouldn't um, say that's true today um, in general. But I then um, looked at a uh, in one of my uh, forays in the evening. I've always been like to read late in the night. Harvard had bound copies of all magazines, um, all scientific journals, and one of them was called the Monthly Weather Review. And in a, like a 1916 article, they had an article about runs and sequences, turning points in weather. And it occurred to me that it would be useful to look at runs and classified by the length of run in the market. So I started uh, while I was competing on the squash and tennis team, I would take the ticker tapes, the Francis Emery Fitch sheets, and I'd start counting reversals and continuations. And I found that it was about nine times as likely for there to be a short-term reversal as a continuation. And I wrote an article on this, and um, it was um, published in the Journal of the American Statistical Association was the lead article, and I applied some what they called some Markov processes uh, to it. So when I went uh, to Chicago, I had this under my belt, and it created uh, trem tremendous uh, negative feedback, uh, hysteria, and uh, tremendous uh, hatred from the random walkers. Um, who then were uh, following the idea that everything was efficient. And they manifested this hatred in many ways. So cognitive dissonance reared its head. Rather than accept the data, they doubled down on the theory. Because you one, also had data showing that there was a consistent pattern between what took place on a Monday and what took place on a Friday. And even though there was a lot of data, they seemed to have a hard time with that. Well, that's that's another story. But as <laughs> as an example, the um, business school was uh, was situated in a place called Haskell Hall at that time. And one time, I was coming down the th from the third floor, and and speech echoes up and 
four or five of the random walkers, including two who have subsequently won Nobel Prizes, uh, were talking, and they were studying us some computer output on stock splits. And I heard one of them say, well, you know, we're really in trouble if we find some regularities here. You know, this, uh, this could defeat our uh, ideas. And I memorialized that conversation, and uh, I did not neglect um, to... Um, to elicit it in some of my presentations. You put together quite a track record. You had a 20-year run uh, up till 1997 of 30% or better annual returns. How on earth do you put together a track record like that? Uh, well, it was um, with a small amounts of, um, of money, and it was certainly unsustainable. Uh, but during that period, uh, two or three times I won the award as the um, best-performing um, managed account. These were commodity futures. Commodity futures traders. And uh, I got another award in 1997, um, right before the debacle that I believe is on the tip of your tongue. The, the Thai bot crisis and uh, what that did to currency and, and commodity prices. I had the model of um, George Soros, who I was very intimate with at, at that time. Uh, we must have spoken 30, 50 times a day. And he always said that he made more money from things he didn't know about than uh, things he did know about. And I unfortunately ran with that idea and I didn't know anything about emerging markets but I sent my uh, before mentioned friend Hobo Keeley mm -hmm. around the world to visit every emerging market and he came back um, with the idea that um, India looked good but they charged you a half a percent or one percent on every transaction and they had some high um, barriers to uh, to entry but he really favored Thailand because on his previous visit uh, the brothels were much in much worse shape and they had really cleaned up the brothel act and he felt that <laughs> that was uh, his economic indicator yeah and the length of the cigarette stubs if people only smoked half a cigarette and threw away you had, you had referenced that uh, it meant they felt confident and had lots of discretionary money. He had a number of, uh, of indirect uh, indicators like that. Um, but in any case, they, they promised uh, low commissions, and uh, the uh, brothels were, um, were very clean, and they, they didn't use strong-arm tactics against the... Um, the, the visitors, the way they, they did on his previous uh, visit. He didn't tell me that 80% of the buildings are, had stopped uh, construction, <laughs> construction in, uh, at the fourth floor. But in any case, I, it was the worst performing market. It was down about 25% at that time when every other market was up 10%. And um, 
I had I'd done some work that um, the worst the worst performing groups in the New York Stock Exchange during the next year always were the best performing and the subsequent subsequent years it went from the worst to the to the best and can you extrapolate New York stock groups to international countries? Uh, regrettably not. <laughs> so, <laughs> but so, I, I, I did I did extrapolate it. It seemed like uh, I had everything. I had the uh, the cigarettes, the brothels, and uh, the commissions, and um, the the prices. The price of a coke was something like two cents uh, there at that that time, and. Uh, so I got in and uh, didn't work it was, out. Oh, uh, it really used up a lot of my um, capital. I, I my liquidity was um, tremendously um, reduced, and I was not able um, to. Um, well, I'll tell you something that's very important. You were talking about my family um, before. Um, my grandfather once told me that the worst thing in the market is to get in over your head. He was a speculator trading in the 20s right up until the, the crash? Uh, he had the pleasure of trading with uh, Jesse Livermore. Oh, really? And in fact... Um, so your grandfather traded with Jesse Livermore. You correct. traded with George Soros. Correct. That's quite a family lineage. Uh Yes, um, somewhat, uh, as I would say, epicyclic in um, both <laughs> both cases. Uh, in fact, my grandfather took lessons from Scott Joplin. Piano lessons. And Yeah, and he knew a lot of the ra uh, unpublished rags. And he was um, the treasurer of Irving Berlin's uh, publishing studio in 1907, and he... Um, had the unfortunate uh, experience of uh, being liquidated during the 1907 crash, which was uh, very similar to the um, 2008 crash in the And then US. again in 1929. Had uh, yeah, he, uh, anyway, he, he always told me, uh, never get in over your head. I was in over my head uh, in with, with, Tha with Thailand and mm -hmm. with option trading. You, you dropped the phrase epicyclical, and I want to reference that because in, in genetics, there's a concept of, and I'm getting the word wrong, epigenomics, or the possibility that experiences can be transferred from one generation to the next. Uh, is that what your reference is? No, I'm not um, talking about the uh, selfish gene and the fact that um, all our activities are designed to um, maximize the fitness of uh, of our uh, and replicability and survivorship uh, mm -hmm. prevalence of genes I'm talking uh, in the old days um, the um, astronomers used to try to calculate the uh, oh, you, the motion the, of the, the planets? orbits of the planets and they'd come up with um, Ptolemy came up with about 30 the, different equations uh, to finally uh, to, to calculate how the planets moved before Newton. Um, the retrogrades thinking the Earth was the center of the solar system instead of the sun. Is that is that what you're referencing? Well, then uh, Copernicus and uh, 
and uh, Tycho de Brock came up with um, various equations, and they called those equations epicyclic because uh, they it. were overdetermined and they had um, too many uh, too many equations for the variables that they were trying to too predict. Too much. By the way, that's probably the biggest mistake that um, the uh, systematic and the um, amateur trader makes in the market. To, uh, over- Too much complexity where simplicity will do. Uh, they call it multiple comparisons. It's um, implicitly to have um, numerous hypotheses that they're testing or that they know about, and then they uh, try to fit that to a very small... Um, small number of observations. I I read that um, you're a great believer in um, indexing. Well, for the average person. Correct. I, I think I, there's also a place for, for tactical. There's a place for active management. But the average mom-and-pop investor, for the most part, can't pick stocks, can't time markets, can't hire people to pick stocks or time markets. And so... I think for them, Jack Bogle had it right. I think you have it right, and Jack <laughs> had it right. By the way, he's a squash player that I've had some contact with. I any think good? He, I think, Is he any good? Yeah, I think he was um, He was quite a good player. I think Come, he's 90 now. 86, 87, something mm. like that. He was just his birthday not too long and, ago. Uh, and, and the sage of Nebraska is a racquetball player. Oh, really? Yes. Warren Buffett. Yes. I had no idea. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Soros before we start talking about your funds. You were trading fixed income and currencies for Soros for for a long time, from 82 to 1990. What was that like? He has a reputation of really micromanaging every trade. What was it like to, to be an active trader under Soros? Well, he taught me... Um quite a few things. Um, most important was that you should always use two cans of tennis balls <laughs> when you were when you were playing. Um, Why is that? Because if you have one can, which used to be three balls, mm-hmm. uh, then you spend half your time chasing right. the balls, whereas if you have two cans, uh, then... You know, ninety percent of the time can be play, and you can let the balls. Is is there play. a metaphor there for life or trading, or is it just about tennis? No, there's a metaphor for for life. <clears throat> you have to um, look at the the big picture and don't don't worry about um, the ephemera. And um, of course, in in my day, I I played tennis every day with my father, and we would shovel snow off the courts in Coney Island to play. <clears throat> and to have one new tennis ball was uh, considered a, a luxury, a tremendous, uh, tremendous luxury, and uh, the idea that you could actually have spend money for two cans and uh, with alacrity was uh, astonishing to me. And What else did you learn from Soros besides always bring an extra can of tennis balls to the court? Uh, no one in the world has a better instinct for survival than he does. Mm-hmm. 
and both during, literally literally having escaped the Nazis and figuratively uh, as a traitor. Exactly, exactly, and he. Uh, I remember, uh, as mentioned, we spoke 50, 60 times a day continuously for about 10 or 12, 15 years. And remember during the October 19th, 1987 crash, uh, on Thursday, October 22nd, uh, he sold all of his stocks, just liquidated them at the open. He made that, that's he made bef- he'd made so many traders on the floor of the mercantile exchange, multimillionaires with that trade. But it occurred to him that uh, he could um, face destruction, and he did what he had to do. He liquidated his entire position. Took a huge loss thinking that survival was more important than anything else. And I, I believe he did the same thing with um, Mr. Druckemeyer in the um, uh, 2000 period um, when um, Druckemiller um, attended a, a conference in which uh, it was mentioned that um, there's no such thing as a proper valuation for um, internet stocks, for technology stocks, and mm-hmm. that you know it's based upon. It should be based upon views and potential. And then he he went whole hog and bought a tremendous uh, percentage of his fund into um, the the companies with multi-billion dollar market values and no earnings and little sales at that time. And and I believe that Soros had the same reaction that he did in 1987, just liquidated the entire position, thought that survival was uh, at stake. And I believe that that was the key um, indicia, the key... um, the key reason that their partnership ended at that time. Is, is the key takeaway you got from Soros the importance of survival in the investment markets? Is, is well, always, should... always live to fight another day? Is that the most important lesson he teaches? Well, one of my mentors, Irving Riddell, always um, said, the market will always be there <laughs> the, the next day. I should have known that. My grandfather told me, don't get in over your head. And, um, and um, from my rackets career, I should have known not to um, play the other person's game. I should have, should have learned that from um, Soros uh, escaping from uh, Hungary. Um, During World War II. Uh, so, yes. so after Soros, you launch your own hedge funds? Tell us what that process was like. Who are your clients? How'd the fund do? Um, well, uh, again, I I had some, as my wife likes to say in um, her um, 
curriculum vita. She's the director of some of um, the um, firms related to um, John Mackey's Whole Whole Foods um, mm-hmm. operation and conscious capitalism, as as she. Uh, likes to say uh, and she's been the director of um on the board of every montessori school that uh, we've sent our kids to or that she's been associated with she's in some of the years we were the best performing fund and in some of the years we were the worst performing fund and then um when i had the tobacco in 1987 she offered to resign from all her boards but uh, they didn't uh, they didn't accept her resignation because she was too good at what she did. Hmm. So you launch your funds. Who well, are your clients, I, and and who's investing with you? Well, I had um, a num- I had a lot of um, people who mistakenly thought that because I was so good in racket sports and because I had a very good academic reputation that I might be good at um, investing. And I did have a good track record for um, many years. It was in 19, as I mentioned, in 1990s. The 20 years prior to 97, you were compounding at 30% a year. Well, again... That's a phenomenal run. It's... It's a lot of... um, It's a lot easier. uh, as, As you may know, when I started out in business, I... I knew nothing, and I took fifty thousand into twenty million in about six months. That's got to be more than just dumb luck. There's oh, got to be no, some skill associated. Was, no, it was very wrongful. Very meaning. I did a I did a lot of um, a lot of bad things. It was very. But you were trading very much. Um, very, very much. Um, over my head, and it was just fortunate that during that period. Um, uh, I had a foundation where I believed that uh, sort of the way a lot of people do now that the world was coming to an end and that gold was going to go from 200 to 1,000, which it did, and that the yields on bonds were going to go from, um, in those days, um, 6% to 12%. And during that six months, it did. But so you were right. You had some big prospect views, yeah, and yeah. they turned out to be correct. Uh, fortunately, I also had learned a little something from my forays into gambling and um, racket sports. And most people make the mistake of putting a limit on how much they're going um, to lose and... They tell the they tell the partner before they start gambling. You know, dear, I'm if I lose more than a thousand dollars, I'm out of here, regardless. And don't um, no matter what I say, don't um, don't listen to me. Um, put put the earplugs in your ears the way um, Ulysses um, shipmates did on um, his travels before the uh, Scylla and Charybdis and the Sirens. And I fortunately um, had a um, had a remembrance of those. It sounded, it 
sounded sensible. So when I got up to 20 million, I told all of my uh, colleagues, including the future Mrs. Niederhofer, I said, if I ever get down to 10 million, if I lose more than half, liquidate me regardless of anything I say. Don't listen to me because I'll probably be begging you not, not to get out at that time. Well, I, I had, there was one player in the New York City area who could give me a game in racquetball. His name was Ruben Gonzalez. And he, he still is at 60 years old. He's in the top 10 in racquetball. He, he was the pro in the Staten Island court club. I went to Staten Island one day during uh, the morning, and uh, I um, we played um, two two games, and uh, it was one all. I made a call to the office, and they said you just lost half your uh, you just lost three quarters of your stake, and you're out of the mark. I said, "What? Are you crazy?" and and what happened by the time it, by the time I got 10? out, it had lost another half. Right, it was falling that at, fast. They started liquidating at ten and, and yeah, turned to five. Yeah, and that, in those days, hmm. uh, to only lose fifty percent was um, pretty, <laughs> pretty good. And and Ruben, uh, about twenty years later, said to me, "No, Vic, I, I remember that game." And when 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 we came back for the third game, you you seemed like like a different person, and you weren't. <laughs> you, you were so uh, you seemed so preoccupied uh, with other things. Uh, it was easy to easy to beat you that so time. So losing three quarters of your fortune affects the your racket game. Is that the uh, takeaway there? Anything, anything affects your market game and your racket game. Everybody loves a comeback story. Tell us how you managed to, uh, after going through that debacle, how did you manage to rebuild um, your trading positions? How do you find the confidence to say, yes, I could do this. This was just an aberration, and I'm going to overcome this? The story is a little bit more complex than, than that. Uh, it, it always is one of one of the aspects of of life is that sometimes a a tremendous quantum event um, can which is seemingly very good um, can have negative consequences and vice vice versa. Uh, from adversity often comes great success. And uh, from racket sports, almost every good racket player will will tell you that the most important lessons and the most the greatest improvements in their life came after um, trem tremendous defeats. Um, and after my um, various debacles, which, as you know, I've been trading for 50, 55 years, so I've had some great successes. And in in great, fact, you, you great, said great that you, you had, I want to get the numbers right, because I want to specifically 
reference some of the successes. You said when we look at the number of trades you have that have been successful, you're hundreds of standard deviations away from the norm. You traded over 2 million contracts with the average profit of over $70 per contract. That's about $150 million in, in gains just from, from those trades. In other words, this is not purely random. There is obviously some skill to that much successful trading. All right. Now I have to talk about a great man, a man I loved. His name was James Laurie, and without him, I wouldn't be in business. He gave me my first job, and he... Um, he was the, the founder of the first major statistical study of returns in common stocks. They called it CRIFS, the Center for Research and Security Prices. Oh, sure. That's and, a huge database these days. Uh, not only is it a huge database, but along with uh, Dimson, Marsh, and uh, Stanton, uh, it's um, the most important thing for um, the investor to comprehend and hopefully to read. Uh, in, any, in any case, he uh, helped me get through my thesis with all the uh, detractors and haters that were um, always around trying to um, do me in. At Chicago. Uh, yeah, they... Um, they, I was not a favored son there, but he steered me through it, helped me keep my scholarship, um, helped me defend my thesis. He was my thesis advisor, got me my first job at Merrill Lynch, my first clients, president of Sunbeam, and his daughter uh, was a, became a trader on the Chicago Options Exchange, and then she worked for me for 15 years. Her name is Erica, and Jim once came to my office whenever he came to New York, and he was on 10 different boards in New York. He, he would stop by, and he said, Victor, if you had told me 20 years ago that my daughter would be working for you with all your regularities and um, predictive patterns, I wouldn't have believed it. And that, to me, is the greatest compliment that uh, I ever received, that he was able to say that his daughter would... Um, find a proper home in my uh, multivariate time series programs and analyses. Now, some of those uh, statistics, again, are, um, again, not very meaningful because they were, um, it's a lot easier to make money when you're trading a few contracts um, than when you're trading a lot. But my experience for Soros um, 
was not altogether positive in the sense that uh, he he liked um, not only to have me trade for him, but he would trade pari passu, he liked to call it, for his fund on the things I was trading with, plus pari passu for his own account. So in other words, he would piggyback your trades. So there would be, when I'd make a trade, and, and then it was also my own trades. So if I made a trade, um, the quid pro quo was I'd make the same trade for him, give him the same prices, and for the fund, and for his own account. So there were um, three levels of trades. My, my trades might have been in those days for um, a um, stated um, market value of 20 or 30 million, but for his fund would be for 200 or 300 million and uh, comparable for, for his own account. So when I traded, uh, if I traded 20 contracts for myself, there'd be 200, be 400 for um, the Parry Passu boys. So it got to be, so I was always, when I had a position, I, I, I was always frightened because how was I going to get out of these, this position? Because when I did, in those days, um, a 50 contract um that was a big uh, trade. position, you know, a five million market value um, in in bonds or ten million in currencies was was big. I had two two hundred, five hundred, sometimes a billion that had to go in front of me. So I became very, very much. Uh, it has to affect your execution it, and the quality it, of it, prints. It made me very short-term oriented when I had a profit. Mm -hmm. I was very quick to take it, and I was very quick to get in. When And you can't get into a big position like that unless it's going the opposite way. So when the market went down, I'd buy it. When it went up, and I became, uh, I, I thought the Federal Reserve should have... Um, paid me a uh, an endowment because I maintained equilibrium and homeostasis in all the markets if it ever moved. you were creating liquidity where there was none I created equilibrium Pre I prevented moves away from the, uh, the normal the normal uh, workings and the so, balance, the harmony of the markets. The markets are always in, in harmony, and if one gets out, then the Federal Reserve would, or the central banks would um, try to um, reduce the disharmony. But instead of their having to work, I was doing it for them. And, and very frequently, um, when I traded, the central banks of Japan and and of Germany would be trading at exactly the same time, and not, not only because uh, they were trying to equilibrate, but also because in those days they had squawk boxes, and the squawk boxes would immediately um, lead to, 
to their doing exactly the same thing. So I became very, um, very much um, a, uh, a, dis, a disequilibrium, um, homeostatic um, playing trader. And that is no good. So let's talk a little bit about the comeback, which I think people are going to find All right, well, fascinating. I'm, go I'm going into that comeback. I realized my um, brother is a lot smarter than I am, a lot more successful than I am. He's now the um, chair of the New York City Opera, which he uh, brought out of bankruptcy. And he plays 22 different instruments. He's brilliant, a very fine guy like my father. But uh, he once said to me, now, look, suppose you were um, in a situation where whenever you made a trade, um, you told it to someone else and he traded 100 times as much as you. And um, for that... Um, you receive 10% of um, the profits. Um, mm -hmm. what, what would that do to your executions and would you make or lose money? And I said, no, I, I wouldn't. Um, I certainly, if I had to trade 1,000 contracts rather than uh, 50, I, I certainly the, the give up. The, uh, the VIG would be, bid-ass spread would certainly... Um, reduce my profits to zero. And he says, so why are you doing it? And at that time, I fortuitously um, realized that I was doing the wrong thing with Soros. I gave him, I said, look, we got to stop this. We'll still, still play tennis and chess together, and I love you, but that's it. And fortunately, in his, his first book, um, before our, uh, before he severed relations with me, he wrote, I, I was the only guy who ever gave him back his money and stopped, um, stopped trading for him while I was still way ahead. So that, that, that was true. But in any case, after 1997 and after 2007, I realized that it was dysfunctional harmful for me to have a, um, a fund that I do much better trading for myself. And that's the only thing I do. I trade for myself. I have a bunch of very loyal and competent um, assistants. You, you have quite me. a staff. I have, I, have no, I have no fund and I have no desire uh, to have a fund. I have no... Um, but no, post-97, no. you had quite a staff of statisticians and mathematicians working with you. I'm trying to pick something up. Well, from... I'm talking about after 2007. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, now from 97 to 2007, it was that roller coaster. Of, it, was, it, was a pretty good, um, it was a pretty good run, as I say. Uh, tw twice during that period, I was voted the um, best trader in uh, the world. I got trophies. And you uh, managed to rebuild your fortune quite. You recovered most of, if not all, of your losses from '97, if um, if I'm remembering the story correctly. 
you know, again, it was from a very small, small base. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing to be overly uh, proud of. But in any case, I, I did have um, a good run uh, to 2007, but I made some terrible mistakes there also. Made some very, so very, let's, very bad errors. So let's talk about those errors briefly. Yes. If I could sum those up, it's essentially you embraced risk and used a lot of leverage, and you're at that point at the mercy of your brokers. Even if your trades, some of your trades that didn't work out, had you had the ability to hold on to them for another six months, would have been how about huge another, winners. How about another six hours? Six hours. Uh, so, so right, what's, now you, 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 uh, I do my homework. You had a very, um, a very good summary. I'm, I'm very impressed that uh, you were able to encompass the, the gestalt, the, the gist of, of my downfall. However. Downfall and recovery. However, I think you got to mention both the down and the up. You can't ignore the however, other. However, there are some grave uh, technicalities yes. involved in my downfall. And the technicalities have to do with the fact of what is called flexionic. Activity. I'm actually searching for that phrase right now. Yeah, look at Janine Waddell. Anyway, a flexion is someone who has his hand in many different areas. In the government, it's someone who's a consultant, who's a uh, a politician, um, who's on the board of uh, he's on the board of various um, and. NGOs. He's a professor at a university. He's a he's a writer for um, the big publications, and there are a lot of them. Um, a former a former executive at a big military firm or a big lobbyist. Mm-hmm. And so the flexions are people that you can't. They're very flexible. You can't really pin what their uh, position is. And anyway, there were flexions in the um, markets that I traded. And these flexions uh, were on the margin committees and the I gotcha. uh, the market-making committee. The, the, and the tr- trades that I put on, there were regrettably only two or three market makers. So you really don't have a lot of flexibility. And the normal bid-ask spread is 50 to 75%. The kinds of things I traded might be um, bid at a half and offered at seven-eighths. Doesn't sound like much, and if you do it in terms of volatility, it might be like uh, 28% volatility versus 29%. But meanwhile, it's 100% bid-ask spread. So that if you try to get out of these positions at any time, and often I had um, a position with uh, market value of $100 million or more, you immediately lose $50 million. Mm-hmm. Now, when the market goes against you, 
the people on this market-making um, uh, pit were also on the margin committee. So they would raise the margins, uh, which happened to me by um, it would go from fifty one for from by fifty uh, percent to um, by fifty percent to a hundred percent, whenever the market had a had a decline of a half a percent or more. In ninety seven, they raised in, they, they raised they margin. Raised, they raised the margin so that and then of course when uh, they also set the prices and often um, the market would stay the same, but uh, the underlying market would stay the same, but the prices of my um, options, which I was short, would often um, go up by 20-25%. My investors were very upset. As you would imagine. Because the market hadn't moved, and as they'd say, you know, when the market goes down, you know, you make 5 or 10%. Uh, when the market goes up, you make 5 or 10%. When the market... Um, goes down, you lose 20 to 25% in a day. Asymmetrical. And how could that be happening? Well, um, what what was I, I? I couldn't get out of the positions because there was a 50, 50% normal bid-ask spread. If you ever tried to um, liquidate, it would be 100 to 200%, let alone what would happen if, if you had to liquidate during a panic. And let's put some flesh on the bones as yes. to the margin. You, yeah. with futures trading at the time, you would put up one percent, and then they'd raise that one percent mid-trade down the road when we hit some turmoil to two or three or four percent. They'd quadruple what you had to put up. That that's well, devastating. Qualitatively, what what you say is true, but it, between the unfortunate um, and very reasonable uh, dissatisfaction of my investors who. Uh, were withdrawing funds, the tremendous um, bid-ass spreads, the um, uh, the raising of margins, the setting of prices uh, that were um, totally out of line with uh, what uh, what they should have been in terms of normal volatility and pricing, plus about ten other mistakes I made. I was able to shoot myself in the foot, did myself in, and I was um, I was forced to um, uh, and to say nothing of the clearing firms who were very upset by the potential for great losses. Fortunately, in the case of two thousand seven seven, there was uh, not any. Uh, my clearing firm made a fortune. From my trades, and um, I was able. Uh, I I I ended up uh, in the hole. But I, of course, I had made hundreds of millions beforehand, and uh, you know, in in total, um, in total, um, it was profitable. But uh, so, it was so it was it was a tragedy and a debacle. But what I'm getting to is, that was it. No more. No more. Hundred percent bid ask spreads. No, no more being forced to liquidate in, in a panic where the hundred million dollars of of positions I had in order to get out would have cost me four hundred million. I don't have a hedge fund, and I'll never, I'll never, go down that road again. Let me say one thing. That's the real story about why I 
loss, not what Nassim Taleb says, and not what the spreads, not, not, spreads, and the and the and the flexions. We have been speaking with Victor Niederhofer, George Soros's trader, uh, author of Education of a Speculator. You can check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>